on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. Stephen Doobie about classical theism and Christology. So we cover all sorts of topics like, let's start with what in the world is classical theism? Does it really have a definable content and meaning? And what are those Christological challenges to classical theism? What does it mean for God to have a really, truly meaningful personal interaction with us? What does this classical theism mean for the unity of the person of Christ? Can can he really have a genuine human experience and suffering if classical theism is true? And so much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I am alone today. So that means I will be asking uh, all of the definitional questions for Brandon Askew, who is normally here with us. Um, if you don't know us, we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And one way we've tried to cash that out is when we think serious, we don't mean just like you you walk on like an academic campus and it's like somber and quiet and no one talks to each other because they're all just reading books. We love reading books. We love doing those things. We want to promote those. But we we are thinking when we talk about serious, we're talking about like serious Christian virtues because we think that is what's going to really help the church uh, as well as just you individually. So when we come up, we try to come up with a couple of ideas to, to promote and those are if you've not heard of us, you don't know these. If you if you do listen to us, you've heard these before. But those are charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We think the, all these things can really help uh, form well put together good Christian thinkers. So we, we try to promote those with the podcast and with everything we do online. We're not always perfect, so we're not always the eminently charitable people or eminently critical people, but we want to try to do all those things. And sometimes, you know, if we just say it enough, maybe it'll get in our heads and it'll actually do some good. So today I'm really looking forward to introducing you all to Dr. Steve Doobie. I think many of you, I mean, we've got a lot of guys, you guys who listen, girls too, who like sort of classical theism, doctrine of God sort of stuff. So I imagine if you're into that sort of thing, you know Dr. Doobie. If you're not, you should know Dr. Doobie. So you'll get to be introduced to him here. He's got a brand new book that we're going to be talking about, Jesus and the God of Classical Theism, Biblical Christology in Light of the Doctrine of God. So you can go get that from Baker Academic. I've seen people getting it already. So depending on when you listen to this, um, you should be able to get a copy of it. So if you're listening to this two years from it released, obviously it's available. Go buy it. Um, I'll have a link to it in the show notes so you can click it and go get it. I think it covers a huge range of topics that are super interesting. I mean, when I think classical theism, stuff that comes up all the time is like incarnation. Uh, so you cover all these really, really important topics in thinking through classical theism. So before we start, um, Steve, maybe you give me just a quick bio, like where are you at now? What do you teach? Um, and then maybe what was it that first got you into thinking about classical theism? Because I know you've been doing this for a while, but was there something that really was like that launching pad that decided, hey, I want to devote a decade plus to thinking and writing about this? Well, thank you for having me. Um, I teach uh, theology at Phoenix Seminary and have uh, been at the school full time for about a year. Previously, I was at Grand Canyon University. So I've been based in Phoenix for a while. Um I, I enjoy teaching systematic theology and I get to teach hermeneutics as well. Um, so for me, uh, the doctrine of God is a, is a significant area of interest. It has been for a while. And then with the most recent, um, the most recent work that I, that I've been doing, um, that is connecting the doctrine of God to Christology and connecting Christology back to the doctrine of God. Um, you asked about what got me interested in this sort of thing. I would say that coming out of my undergraduate experience and getting into seminary, I was very interested in questions about how we know what we know, how do we know what we know about God. And um, eventually, I finally started listening to the people that said, actually, what is true about God ought to shape how we think we know God. And so I started thinking uh, beyond just matters of uh, theological method or theological epistemology, started thinking more about God himself, God's attributes, the Trinity, God's relationship to the world. And when I was in seminary, the volumes of uh, Herman Bavinck's Reformed Dogmatics were, they were, they were rolling out in English. 
And Bavink has some uh, strong material on the doctrine of God with, with great people appearing over and over again in the footnotes. So I got excited about um, taking those figures more seriously, Augustine and Aquinas and the Reformed Orthodox and others. And from there, it, was, it wasn't hard for me to, to develop a love for thinking more about God's attributes, the Trinity, uh, God's relationship to the world, and also how, how it is that we human creatures come to know God. Yeah, that's awesome. And you actually know Latin and read all those guys in Latin, don't you? Well, it is it is um it's a joy to be able to do that. I would never claim to be a uh um superior Latin scholar or something like that, but being able to read those works was a carrot dangling in front of me that that pushed me to try to get familiar at least to some degree with the language. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, half the time I'm reading your stuff, I'm like, man, this guy looks interesting. I've never read him before. And then I realize, oh, there's nothing in English. Wow. So this is <laughs> definitely motivation to go try to learn myself because you, yeah, of introducing course. all these awesome sources in your works that I think uh, would be beneficial to me and others. So let's go ahead and start with, let's, when we're talking about classical theism, what are we talking about? How would you define classical theism compared to something else? I mean, you can compare it to however many different variations you want, but just like when we're talking classical theism, what do we mean? Yeah, usually I would just say we're talking about a view of God that emphasizes certain divine attributes like aseity, immutability, impassibility, simplicity, God's transcendence of time. I know that each one of those things um, warrants a definition in its own right, but but before diving into all of that, I would just say usually by classical theism, someone means to refer to an account of God that emphasizes attributes like that. You could also talk about an attribute like divine omniscience and, and how in, in a historic Christian account of God, uh, divine omniscience has worked out differently than than it would be in something like open theism, for example. I do I do add um, in the book, or, or I emphasize right out of the gate that I'm I'm not particularly interested in the phrase itself. I think that people bring a lot of baggage to the table when they start to talk about classical theism. So if someone doesn't like the phrase, or if using that phrase ends up bringing in all kinds of distracting ideas and, and distracting objections and so forth. I just don't, I don't really care about the phrase. I've used it uh, on the cover of the book, I, I suppose, just to alert people to the kind of discussion that's being had or the kind of subject matter that's included. And if someone doesn't like the phrase, that, that's fine with me. I'm, I'm, I just want to get into the substantive exegetical doctrinal claims and debates that we need to have. So I am curious if you could give... I don't know, a one or two minute pitch to somebody. So we got a lot of listeners ranging from academics to aspiring academics to also a huge segment of pastors. Why is it that thinking about this is relevant for the local church? Like, what is the payoff, would you say, I, before we jump into all the other stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say that from Scripture, we understand that at the heart of the Christian life is knowing the triune God, knowing and living in communion with the triune God. He is the one to whom we pray, whom we worship, and our view of God uh, shapes how we function in the Christian life, and in fact, whether we can function in the Christian life. So I think having a strong understanding of how God, for example, has life in and of himself, and he doesn't depend on us to be who he is, that reinforces a number of key things for us in the Christian life or in pastoral ministry. For for example, God God is never going to use us in order to somehow improve himself. He's already fine, to put it somewhat simplistically. He just wants to cause us to grow and he delights in our well-being. I find those sorts of things to be really encouraging in pastoral ministry or in the Christian life. And uh, I think at least in my my experience anyway, in teaching on these things, Christians are appreciative of the fact that um, God doesn't need to be completed by us, but in fact comes to us from a position of completeness, uh, uh, from a position in which he's never going to be harmed or damaged by things that we do, or never exhausted by us. It's good to know that our God is inexhaustible. I would say that's an aspect of impassibility. Um, it's good to know that because we need to 
be free to call upon him without worrying about draining him or something like that. We need to, we need to be able to bear in mind that despite everything bad that happens in the world, we are headed for a joyful communion with God. It's not as if God's goodness or sufficiency or contentment is ever going to be lost. So I think I would connect this view of God to the everyday realities of the Christian life and also to our future hope as Christians. That's good stuff. So now let's go ahead and jump in to some of the Christological maybe challenges. So tell me, like, what in your mind are the main challenges from Christology to whatever it is, like, whether you like the terminology or not, the, the claims behind classical theism. So what are the main challenges? Yeah, I've tried to identify three that I think come up fairly frequently. I'm fine if someone wants a bigger list than that, or they want to add more sub points to it or whatever. But the three that I try to highlight in the book are, um, first of all, um, God, the son or Christ, um, has meaningful personal interaction with the father and with the spirit in the gospels. And there are some that would worry that that, um, interaction of the the son with the father and the spirit would somehow be compromised in a so-called classical theistic view of God. And among other things, that is because, um, according to a uh, historic Christian view of God that includes divine simplicity, the Father, Son, and Spirit share one divine intellect, will, and power, and they perform all of God's works together. So, that sometimes leads people to worry that um, uh, that view of God would somehow make the Gospels unintelligible to us, given that uh, the Father sends the Son, for example, and the Son depends upon the Spirit's power and activity in, in his incarnate ministry. Another one, another challenge that I've highlighted in the book is um, a question about whether you can uphold the unity of the person of Christ, given um, teachings in earlier Christian accounts of God. So, for example, um, if it is the case that um, Christ in his divinity transcends change, transcends time, what do we do with the fact that in in the Gospels, he is a person who undergoes change. He is a person who experiences limitations and, and is situated within the flow of time and so forth. So I guess um, for some people, it looks like those two sets of attributes or uh, two sets of claims could not possibly fit within or could not possibly be attributed to one and the same person. So I think in the eyes of some, uh, this view of God would would implicitly have to split apart the person of Christ and then end up with one divine person and one human person in the incarnation, which, of course, is just an echo of Nestorianism, an error that had to be confronted earlier on in the church. Then the third objection that I the third objection that I highlighted, uh, which is really an extension of the second one, is uh, it has to do with um, a concern for the genuine human experience and genuine human suffering of God the Son. So if, uh, if in our doctrine of God we claim that God is impassable and therefore that Christ as God is impassable, um, there are people then that would worry about whether Christ could not really have had genuine human experience or undergone genuine human suffering. I think all of those objections matter. And I think that um, at the same time, it's possible to answer all of those to secure the good things that those objections are pointing to, but without actually having to jettison uh, historic Christian teaching about God's attributes and the Trinity. Okay, that's helpful. So I think I've heard all of those before um, from various people who are worried about classical theism. Um, I think there's a lot of people who they have these sort of intuitions that, that when they look at classical theism, they're like, this seems to naturally entail these sort of things and they don't know how to reconcile mm-hmm. it. So I think a lot of people would say, I'd be happy to affirm classical theism if I could have good answers to these questions. And it seems like that, you know, that first one, you're talking about this meaningful personal interaction that seems to be a common objection where they think that, you know, if mm-hmm. God is atemporal, he's immutable, how can he have a genuine interaction with us? How can Christ in his two, na- like, it seemed like you were mentioning how 
it seems that it almost generates two persons in, in some views. So like, mm. how would you go about overcoming some of these? Maybe, maybe you want to tackle one of the common ones that I've seen. And I think you have a whole chapter on it. If I remember right, uh, the sun suffering chapter seven, um, mm-hmm. the sun being able to suffer and yet us wanting to say the divine nature doesn't suffer. Like how, how does that not entail a contradiction? Like walk me through what are the steps and the distinctions you yeah. want to make? Yeah. I think one of the crucial things there is just to remember the distinction between the two natures of Christ, his divinity and his humanity. It is common uh, is a matter of common Christian confession that, that we acknowledge that the two natures of Christ they're never separated from each other, and yet at the same time, they're never confused with each other or or collapsed into one another. So that that's a very simple point to make when we're when we're in discussion, when 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 we're, when we're in some deep theological discussion. But I think it's actually a point that's easy to lose in the midst of all of this. So if we do confess that there's one person whose divine nature remains distinct from his human nature, we really are still in a position to say. For example, um, he is immortal as God and yet mortal as human. He is uh, he transcends suffering as God and yet is subject to suffering as human. Um, I, I think it's it's tempting for theologians to imagine that his divine nature and human nature somehow have to be assimilated to each other or to become more like each other in order to secure the fact that he remains one person. To which I would say, um, we're not supposed to imagine that the the natures or essences themselves are the focal point of the union that takes place in the incarnation. The focal point is the person. So there's not a, there's not a problem with still confessing that the divinity is radically unlike the humanity. Uh, and and one one thing that that means is that the divinity is still free to remain impassable, even as the son undergoes human suffering. And I think it's helpful for people to bear in mind that while we while we would not say, or I'm, I'm presupposing the view that I take here, while we would not say that um, God as God is undergoing suffering, it's still possible and legitimate and necessary to say that God does undergo suffering. Because when we say that, we're talking about God, the person of the Son, in his humanity, undergoing suffering. And while it may be tempting to say that doesn't sound like it's good enough, we have to remember God the Son is just as truly human as he is divine. So we're not we're not offering up something that is second rate here. We can say without crossing our fingers behind our back, that God does undergo suffering in the incarnation. The key distinction is it's God as human and not God as God that is undergoing the suffering. Um, I think that um, we recognize that to be the case with with many other things that we say about the person of Christ. For example, we, 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 we would say, could say, should say that God um, experienced thirst in the incarnation. Um, but it, But it's it's easy for us to recognize we're saying God as human experienced thirst in the incarnation rather than God as God. Um, there are some people that object to um, predicating certain things of Christ as God uh, and predicating contrasting things of Christ as human. Um, I, that's part of, I think that's part of what we see in scripture itself though. For example, first Peter four, one, um, specifies Christ suffered in the flesh. Scripture already begins the process for us of attributing certain things to Christ. In that case, to Christ as human. It's certainly part of uh, part of the logic of the the Council of Chalcedon, predicating certain things of Christ as God, predicating certain things of Christ as human. Um, more recently, people have wondered whether that is viable. There are different logical objections brought up to that. Um, I try to try to work through those in the last chapter of the book and without going into all the details, I, I would just say for now, I, I didn't find them convincing. I didn't find them to actually problematize what we call reduplicative speech, predicating certain things of Christ as God, predicating certain things of Christ as human. So another question that I think is similar to this that I hear pretty often when it comes to the incarnation and classical theism is, 
how is it that the divine nature can remain immutable if there is a point at which the son does not have a human nature and then a point at which he does have a human nature? How does that not implicate him in some sort of change? Yeah. So I I would say um, when we talk about the action of the son taking on flesh, it's important to recognize that um, in his divinity, that didn't require some sort of shift or, or change. And I say that because um, I think as Christians, we need to acknowledge that God is already active in himself and didn't have to take a step from being idle to being active. Um, and in the incarnation, um, the son just applies his already active power um, to the creation and assumption of human flesh. And it's then at that point, with the principle of his human nature uh, taken into unity with himself, that he begins to undergo change. So I suppose to, to reiterate that, I would just say that, yes, of course, it is, it is by his divine power that he takes on flesh. But God's actions, um, such as the assumptive act of, of taking on flesh in the person of the son, God's actions just don't have to involve the sorts of changes that we expect to see when creatures perform actions. I know that not everyone is satisfied with that. And I know that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of theological argumentation that must go into that, but I just, I think it's important um, to recognize something about the nature of divine action and how the God performing new actions in the world doesn't require any fluctuation or change in God's own actuality at that point. So we can say certainly that, the breaking forth of God's power and the creation of, of, of Christ's human nature or the assumption of Christ's human nature, that is, that is a new thing. But the actuality by which God did that, it didn't have to involve any fluctuation in Christ's divine essence. And then, of course, once he has the human nature in union with himself, then in his humanity, he certainly is a subject of, of change and going through intervals of time and all of that. That's good. I mean, it. If it's not clear already for you guys who are listening, clearly there's a lot of theological inputs that are going into these discussions. Um, I feel like you have to know a ton. And one of those things that I'd like you to kind of cash out a little bit is the role of metaphysical concepts when it comes to these sort of discussions. So I know you have a whole book, you know, God in Himself, thinking about Scripture and metaphysics. So I'm not asking you to give me the whole summary of all that, but just give me the Cliff Notes version of how metaphysical concepts play into this. Because I do think, at least from my reading of other people who want to object to classical theism, oftentimes it does come down to how we think about metaphysics. Yeah, I think it's important to get a sense of clarity on what metaphysics is, what metaphysical concepts are for. Um, it seems to me that in modern theology, um, sometimes theologians want to say that um, talking about aseity or immutability or simplicity or something like that is a matter of metaphysics. And I actually, I actually think it's important to go back to earlier Christian views of what what metaphysics actually is, and in what what I would take to be the strongest accounts of what metaphysics is. Um, Christian theologians are very clear that God is actually not the subject of the discipline of metaphysics. And it's not as if metaphysical concepts can be applied straightforwardly to God. So I think within the Christian tradition itself, there is um, built in already established criticism of how metaphysics would work in theology or how metaphysical concepts could be used in theology. So I, I think, at least to me, it's fascinating that there are people that that really worry about the use of metaphysical concepts as if that was done uncritically up to this point. I, I, I would want to say, actually, the theologians that you are thinking uh, uncritically used metaphysical concepts, they already anticipated significant concerns about this. And it's important to listen to how they uh, chasten the use of metaphysical concepts in, in theology. So in the book God and Himself, and then also in the first chapter of this book on Christology, I've tried to say there are real concerns here, and we have to make sure we don't just straightforwardly apply metaphysical concepts um, as if God were just one more being alongside of us in the same 
field of being. Since that's not the case, since Christianity confesses a robust creator-creature distinction, uh, we have to say that metaphysical concepts like essence and substance and all of that, they can at best apply analogically to God, you know, in a sense that is somewhat different from the sense in which we would apply them to created beings. And then from there, I think another key point to be made um, is not only that we will have to adjust our metaphysical concepts in some way to be applicable to God, but also um, at its best, the earlier works in metaphysics like those of Aristotle, uh, Boethius, uh, others in the Christian tradition, at their best, those works are really just trying to offer refined descriptions of things that people already know about. The average person has in his or her mind all that's necessary to get to a distinction, let's say, between essence and person or, or something like that. Um, what we find in philosophical treatments or theological treatments of those concepts is just an attempt to offer, offer more clarification or shed light on those things. So I don't think the use of metaphysical concepts has to be this scary thing that, that, that is way different from our ordinary efforts in exegesis to just try to shed light on what scripture teaches so that Christians can have a better understanding of it. So metaphysical concepts, they do have to be modified in theology. And secondly, I think they're best viewed as uh, ordinary features of knowledge that have just been explained in a more technical way. So let's say when we come to the doctrine of the Trinity, um, it's, it's fitting in a chastened way to apply the language of essence and person and in doing that, we're not saying let's just concede Christian doctrine uh, to unbiblical philosophy or something like that. All we're doing is saying we have helpful conceptual resources and distinctions that we use and we should use to shed light on what is there in Scripture. If we don't do that, uh, I think we are refusing to avail ourselves of key aspects uh, of our ordinary knowledge that we can use to shed light on what's there in the Bible. And if we refuse to do things like that altogether, we're really left with just repeating verbatim what is there in the Bible. However, we all know that anyone can appeal to or quote the words of Scripture. The question, and they can be dead wrong in their understanding of it, the question is always, um, when, there are, when there's more than one competing understanding here, which one best sheds light on what's there in Scripture? Which one best represents the teaching that's there. So I think metaphysical concepts or the use of metaphysical concepts is just supposed to help us with that, help us do exegesis better. And I hope at least in the first chapter of the book, I've, I've indicated that um, all of this can be really helpful and it doesn't have to be, have to be viewed as something that's wildly different from our other efforts at biblical exegesis. So a common worry I've seen when it comes to this metaphysical aspect is they people will look at classical theism and say, it's so tied up and bound with the Roman Catholic Thomas Aquinas and the pagan mm. Aristotle that I just gotta <laughs> I gotta start fresh and do something different. So yeah. what is the the rebuttal or reply to that that you would offer? Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say Thomas Aquinas does come before. Uh, a number of things that we now associate with Roman Catholicism um, coming from the Council of Trent and, and trickling down from there. Um, there are things about Aquinas that are, well, just just not the same as what you have in the Council of Trent. Maybe that's another discussion for another day. But um, even, even as he does affirm things about justification, for example, that a Protestant uh, would not want to affirm, um, he's still part of our Christian heritage, and so we are we are in a position to access all of the insights that he provided, um, and to to recognize him as a brother in Christ and a, and a, a spiritual predecessor, um, while also being critical of things that were incorrect, like teaching about justification or transubstantiation or something like that. Uh, in other words, I think we as Protestants still ought to be uh, small C Catholic to have a small C Catholic mindset. Uh, and recognize that we're free to develop and, and uh, retain the insights of someone like Aquinas. Um, and, and furthermore, I think that, unfortunately, Protestants um, 
sometimes have a an inaccurate view of how Thomas did his work as a philosopher and a theologian. Um, I think that comes from people like uh, Van Til or the Van Til crowd um, who who don't really have a good understanding of how <clears throat> excuse me how Aquinas went about his business uh, and overlook the fact that he was a very prolific biblical commentator. For example, would have considered himself an exegete, a theologian. Uh, at least it seems to me even more, even more, that would have been even more fundamental to his sense of identity than, than that of a uh, philosopher. Um, and he, of course, did begin to utilize the Aristotelian philosophical tradition. Um, it was helpful to him. Um, and we don't want to naively claim that Aristotle was a, was a Christian or something like that. But as I was trying to say before, I think it's important to remember that um, at his best, Aristotle and those like him, just trying to shed light on what the average person already knows about the world uh, um, through the use of concepts like being and essence and substance and accident and all of that. And using concepts like that or learning from insights in that philosophical tradition, it doesn't at all require us to take on board every single thing that someone like Aristotle taught. We don't need to take on board his cosmology, for example, or his understanding of the relationship between God and the world. And you see someone like Aquinas as a Christian recognizing that he could not just uncritically affirm all of those things. So I think, yes, we're right to look back at authors like that with a, with a critical eye and be ready to recognize that um, they go wrong in some places, but it would also impoverish our own thinking if we refuse to listen to authors like that. And I, I, I would just emphasize there's nothing unprotestant about utilizing those resources one one way in which we can see that is basically the doctrine of god that you find in aquinas is carried forward amongst the early amongst the early protestant theologians the reformation was not focused on let's say denying divine simplicity or something like that it was focused on matters like justification, its relationship to the sacraments, ecclesial authority relative to biblical authority, and all of that. So I would say we, we should learn from those thinkers while also still being unashamedly Protestant. Yeah, that's good. So you've got a chapter, I think chapter two, on the son's eternal relation to the father. So maybe talk to me a little bit about what is the eternal relation to the father, and then how is it that God can remain simple and yet have these distinctions. And maybe you walk me through if it's a real distinction, if it's a logical distinction and all that kind of stuff. You don't have to. But I'm just thinking through, how is it that that's possible, that there's a distinction and yet he is simple? Yeah. My somewhat cheeky answer to questions like that sometimes would be, I don't really have to worry about the fact that about whether it's possible because if if it just already is the case then <laughs> I'm I'm just I'm just reflecting on that which God has already revealed about himself. But I know that our part of our work as theologians involves clarifying the how as much as we can under the limits of our finite knowledge. So, um in talking about the son's relation to the father, I think it's first of all important to acknowledge that the son does have a particular relation to the father, a particular eternal relation to the father. In other words, to put it crudely, the Trinity is not three guys hanging out with uh, unspecified um, connections to each other or no connections to each other in eternity past. Um, there are uh, key central um, constitutive relations um, amongst the three divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So in the case of the Son, um, he has a relation to the Father in which he has eternally come forth from the Father or been begotten of the Father. I know that we don't use the word begotten so much in our in our contemporary English, but um, the bottom line is he has eternally come forth from the Father or been fathered by the Father in such a way that he shares the Father's essence and in such a way that he is the perfect image of the father. So in that in that chapter chapter 2 of the book I've tried to say look not only does the not only does uh the fact that he is the son indicate that he has a relation to the person called father that's at the heart of the meaning of those names but scripture also gives us a sense that um this relation is an active one in which the son actively proceeds 
eternally from the Father, which I take to be borne out in different places in Scripture, among other places, John 5, 26, where the Father gives to the Son to have life in himself. Um, seems to me very hard to argue that that's anything other than divine life, divine the divine essence and power itself. And if the Father gives that to the Son, it's not as if he did that recently. He did that eternally. Otherwise, the Son would not be eternal God. Uh, so anyway, I think, I think Scripture... Um, Scripture confirms, or in the first place, it gave rise to the teaching of the the processions of the the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're focusing on the Son right now. Now, the question, the next question would be, how does that cohere with God being simple? And I think it's important for um, for students of theology or, or readers on the doctrine of God to remember that divine simplicity doesn't involve negating all distinctions in God. I think there are some there are some some cases where people have what I would call an overly austere understanding of divine simplicity as if it precludes all sorts of distinctions in God. If someone says that, I would just say they haven't closely read the literature from the major proponents of divine simplicity. So simplicity precludes certain kinds of distinctions, those that would involve parts or those that would involve multiple entities in God that, that somehow come together to compose a greater whole. Whereas in the case of the divine persons, we're talking about relations that they have to each other or certain modes of being that each one of them has. And a relation, uh, a relation, a way of being, those are not distinct entities or things in their own right. So when we, when we affirm relations in God or, or three distinct modes of being in God, we are not piling up multiple parts or multiple things in God. Um, so in that regard, there just is not a necessary conflict between confessing the eternal relations of the persons on the one hand and the doctrine of divine simplicity on the other hand. That's where I would start at least. So that's that's super interesting and helpful. So walk me through a little bit on the simplicity piece, because I think a lot of people get stumbled on that. Um, so you're talking about it doesn't preclude all distinctions. Where would, like, in your mind, where did you say, if you want to learn more about this and have a good sense and understanding of it, you mentioned if people think that it does preclude all distinctions, they're not very familiar with the literature. What should they be reading on that? Uh, I mean, two two works that I that I think are helpful would be, um, let's say, Aquinas's Summa. I mean, that that's one place to go. Actually, I'll mention three. So, Aquinas's Summa is helpful um, both in in treating divine simplicity toward the beginning, and then a little bit later on the topic of God uh, treating the distinctions among the persons. Um, Aquinas even affirms that the persons are really relatively distinct. He, they're not really distinct with regard to excuse me, the divine essence or multiple essences in God, but they are really distinct with regard to the relations that they have to each other, relations um, that do not exist just in the human mind as, as the mind contemplates God. Um, I have also found um, Aquinas' commentary on the sentences, Peter Lombard's sentences is a um, wonderful medieval textbook, um, and Aquinas' commentary on the sentences is is helpful on the topic of divine simplicity. Um, another place that someone could go would be Francis Turretin, um, one of the Reformed Orthodox authors who's available in English. Um, he does some great work um, explaining how the, the divine attributes should function in our theology, um, how the persons of the Trinity are distinct from each other without that compromising God's simplicity. So those are a couple of authors that come to mind, Aquinas and Turretin. There are many others, but that's a start at least. Yeah, that's helpful. And if you didn't know, Dr. Doobie also has a book uh, on divine simplicity that you can check out. So we've mentioned three of them so far, so I'll make sure to link to all three of those. Um, Steve, a lot of our listeners, they're interested in this this topic quite a bit. They'd like to do more research. What's your advice to maybe two sets of people? One is they're a student, maybe they're going to be a PhD student, they currently are, um, advice when it comes to this area, and then advice to pastors. So I know a lot of pastors who are interested in this. I know denominations that are having even 
fights over natural theology, classical theism, and trying to like understand God rightly, what would your advice be to that group as well? So two separate groups, I think two different yeah. types of advice. What would you say? Yeah, I think regarding students, um, two things. One would be just persistently dive into primary sources. It's really easy for us to get distracted by secondary literature. It's really easy for us to read what so-and-so said about uh, a particular figure in the past. And sometimes it's, um, it's actually easier to read the original figures themselves um, to, to jump into what they actually said instead of wading through many, many details about what so-and-so thought they said. Um, yes, still pay attention to secondary literature, but I would say go in, dive into the primary sources, whether you're interested in reading church fathers, medieval teachers, early modern Protestant thinkers, or whatever the case may be. I think you'll find uh, richer insights and also more enjoyment in your theological work. And also, I think you will be more useful to others when you explain what, you know, say a question comes up that's a difficult one, and you start to explain what people of the past actually thought about this and what can be learned from them. It's very helpful for other people. And also sometimes when people misrepresent key points in, in the history of Christian theology, it's important to be able to step in and say, actually, no, that is not at all what whoever it was, Athanasius or Augustine or somebody, that's not at all what they said. And sometimes reading earlier figures like that carefully, it actually, uh, it helps us keep in mind they they don't always burden us with some of the claims that that certain people think they do um so that that's one thought the other one is just um in in studying the doctrine of god don't neglect scripture i think it's important for students in this area to keep reading scripture and seeing how the the biblical text has given rise to key claims uh in theology proper in the history of the church um, sometimes those, those primary sources that I was just emphasizing, sometimes they, at least in my experience, they will bring in a, a biblical passage that I didn't, I didn't even, I didn't have in mind at all. I didn't even think about the fact that it needed to be brought to the table. And, uh, so my encouragement is just keep reading scripture as well. Um, uh, now regarding those who are serving as pastors or in different ministry capacities, um, I would say, I mean, in, in, a, in a sense, something similar, do, do feel free to dive into some earlier Christian works on this. I think it's helpful to keep in mind that they are, yes, offering um, their best intellectual efforts, but they're also really inclined to think about how all of that connects to the spiritual life. So if you read, for example, Augustine's book on the Trinity or uh, works by Athanasius or John of Damascus or or whichever whichever figure it is, I think you'll find even those difficult works to be spiritually enriching. And then, of course, there are there are efforts today to uh, to try and connect um, try and connect these matters in the doctrine of God to the life of the church or to um, everyday discipleship. And I think we'll see that probably more and more as people continue to have an interest in this topic and fleshing out how it, how it connects to the Christian life. So um, be on the lookout for works that, that try to do that sort of thing that are available today because they are out there. Awesome. So one last question I want to ask you is how flexible do you think classical theism is? And by that, I mean, like how much can you change and ultimately still be confessing alongside the great tradition? So I'll, I'll give an example of someone. I mean, Oliver Crisp, who I have tremendous respect for. Um, I learn something from him every time I read him. Um, he's probably one of my favorite. He may be my favorite theologian. He had, you know, he puts forward a model of simplicity that I think most people would say that doesn't look like divine simplicity. He has, I think he calls it the parsimonious model. Mm -hmm where it does seem to be significantly distinct. So is something like that, as an example, outside of whatever you would say the tradition has typically wanted to confess about God? Or is there room for small deviations like that? I guess part of it is just determining where these sort of guardrails are. But as yeah. we think about this, I think there are a lot of people who say, I want 
to be, I want to be in the great tradition, but I don't know if I can fit in there. Uh, is there a way for me to kind of softly change a couple of these things to where I feel comfortable? Yeah, that's a great question. I would, I, I mean, I would, I would say Oliver is an example of someone who's, he's an extremely kind person and, uh, writes a lot, encourages other people in their work. Um, so I, I appreciate his demeanor that he has as he goes about, as he goes about the work that he does and his conversations with other people. Um, yeah, re- regarding, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll say maybe, maybe two things in response to that. One would be, I do think that oftentimes, um, people assume that classical theism, for lack of a better phrase, that it saddles them with certain really difficult um, theological or philosophical claims that they just can't bear because of whatever it is, their exegesis or their concern to have God meaningfully related to the world. Um, I, I guess for whatever it's worth, my encouragement is, or I found it encouraging that over and over, when I have tried to dig more deeply into those earlier resources, I have found, oh, they're not actually burdening me with that thing that I was really worried about. Um, that that would be true with divine simplicity. That would be true with divine eternity, in my case, with God's transcendence of time. So a first thought is just do try to be patient and work with some of those earlier resources, the, the, the creedal material. The, the major theologians of the past, because I think that they will often surprise us and be more capacious than or more attentive to the details of the Bible than we might have first thought. Now, the question still is there. Um, how much movement away from that would be acceptable? And I think that's a tricky question because we'd have to think about it on multiple levels. Um, someone could say, does such and such a move still count as being within the classical theistic tradition? As I've said before, classical theism is a pretty, it's pretty vague and there is not any one person that is the appointed police officer for determining what is, what, what falls within that phrase. So I think that one is a tough, that one would be a tough question to answer. Maybe more specifically, we could say, let's just talk about what fits with, the Council of Nicaea or the Council of Chalcedon, or um, if you're operating within one of the major Protestant traditions, what fits with the 39 Articles or the Westminster Confession of Faith or 1689 London Baptist Confession? Um, If we're thinking more specifically um, about something like that, um, yeah, I mean, there, there are moves away from earlier accounts of simplicity or impassibility, let's say, that I think would put a person at odds with what their, their church tradition confesses. So I'm thinking of, you know, the early Protestants talking about God being without body parts or passions. Um, it's, it's really not a good idea to try to redefine all that, that, all that that means. And then still say, look, I'm, I'm all set because I, I formally use the same language. We do have to bear in mind the material content of the confessional material. Um, I know I'm not, I'm not answering all the specific questions that would come to mind here, but I think, I think keeping contact with concrete creedal or confessional materials would be a way to go. And then, then we would have to ask, does, does the thing that so-and-so says, does it actually fit with, uh, the confessional material to which he or she has bound himself or herself. That that's, that's how I would look at that. We could talk sp- more specifically about Oliver's uh, proposal regarding a, a, uh, an account of divine simplicity. I, I mean, just, just thinking off the top of my head, I've, I've read his essay on that. You know, I do think it, it moves away from securing what I've always taken to be the heart of uh or the, uh, I guess the, the, the main reasons to affirm divine simplicity. So uh, maybe sometime I'll have a chance to talk with Oliver about that. But I think that, that, that may be an example of someone still wanting to uphold simplicity in a sense, but then also moving away from some of the reasons or the central claims that have been associated with the doctrine before. Um, and yeah, then at that point, I think it's, it's harder to, evaluate that based on an abstract phrase like classical theism and easier to evaluate that based on concrete creedal or confessional materials. Yeah, that that's really good advice. Very, very helpful. So thank you. Thanks for walking us through this. I mean, for everybody who's listening, I think we've whetted your appetite some. Uh, 
we've covered like talked a little bit in brief about three maybe of the like eight chapters <laughs> so there is a lot of great material that you're going to enjoy and be able to engage with if you get this so it is what we like to call red meat uh, for those who are interested in this uh, topic so I think you should go get a get a copy of it read it enjoy it uh, be challenged by it wrestle with it that's what good theology does it forces us to think and I think um, you've done that with this book so not to mention your other ones that we've we've talked about so check those out um, and everybody who's been listening I mean Steve, you're at Phoenix Seminary. Remind me, so do you supervise THM thesis or anything? So our THM degree at the moment focuses especially on the biblical studies disciplines, Old Testament, okay. New Testament. We'll have to see what that looks like in the future with, with systematic theology or historical theology. Um, what I get to do, I, I get to teach you know the master's level students in MDiv programs, MA programs, um, systematic theology classes, and then they also let me teach hermeneutics. As I like to say, they let the systematic theologian keep his hands on the Bible here at this institution, <laughs> which I am very thankful for. That's awesome. And so if you go to Phoenix for your master's degree, you have not only Steve, but you have David Hogg there too. So a big David Hogg fans here at the London Lyceum. So you'd get two excellent, excellent scholars if you go there, not to mention the other guys. I don't want to, you know, throw shade on them but i you know i'm just i think me and brandon are david hogg fanboys so you'd have a chance to study with some really awesome people there so if you're not familiar with phoenix maybe you should check it out or if you're in that area um, give it a second look and maybe you can do some serious theological education there to benefit the local church so everybody who's been tuning in thanks this is the only analytic baptist and confessional podcast on the planet and we'll talk to you guys soon Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.